I want to begin with a video, a video that was done by, a message was done by Charles Spurgeon. He was called one of the uh, England's most prominent preachers in his day. Just look at this video just a few moments. you the meaning of that name, Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, it is wisdom's mystery, God with us. Sages look at it and wonder. Angels desire to see it. The plumb line of reason cannot reach halfway into its depths. The eagle wings of science cannot fly so high, and the piercing eye of the vulture of research cannot see it. God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. His legions fly apace. The black-winged dragon of the pit quails before it. Let Satan come to you suddenly, and do you but whisper the word, God with us, and back he falls, confounded and confused. Satan trembles when he hears that name. God with us. It is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor acknowledge his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us is the sufferer's comfort is the balm of his woe, is the alleviation of his misery, is the sleep that God gives to his beloved, is the rest after exertion and toil. God with us is eternity's sonnet, is heaven's hallelujah, is the shout of the glorified, is the song of the redeemed, is the chorus of angels, and is the everlasting oratorio of the great orchestra of the sky. God with us. God with us. with us because that's what this season is all about how many of you use Twitter nobody used Twitter that's all what about Facebook they're all Facebook guys but what I want you to do on Christmas Day is that the first message you put on your as a tweet or as a Facebook is those words God with us 
Let that be the first thing that you put on Facebook or on your tweet or by user the tweet on Christmas Day, okay? Because that's what it's all about, amen? God with us. Sila. Now, that may sound strange to you coming at the beginning of my message because I haven't ended it yet. I usually end my message with this exhortation. Sila. Think and act on these things. Sila means to meditate, to consider, to reflect, or to think upon what is being said or what has been said. The an act is my addition, all right? The idea, of course, is to think with the purpose of taking what you, hear, what you have heard to heart so that you might listen and obey what is being said because you have evaluated what you have heard and come to the conclusion that it is something you should take heed to. It is something to ponder over, to think much about. Sila, God with us. Now, I have put it at the beginning of my message today because I want you to get set to think. I want you to prepare to think. Not to think about what you're going to do after meeting, but to think about what you're going to be here, what you're going to be hearing. To think about what I will say to you and what the word will say. Now, now listen carefully. I don't want you to think that I think you don't think when you listen to sermons. I don't think that at all. But I really do think that you need to be encouraged to think about the message today. Now, thinking, of course, involves using our mind. And the Bible tells us that using our mind is a way of loving God. Did you know that? Because we are commanded to do what? To love God with our whole heart, our whole soul, and what? Our mind. And that's what we have to think with. You see, we are going to be speaking about the unspeakable and thinking about the unthinkable. We are going to be talking about the most explained but yet unexplained, the understood but yet beyond understanding event, not that has, I'm sorry, but yet beyond understanding event that has ever occurred in the history of the human race. And I'm talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and in particular, the event that is usually mistakenly called the virgin birth. So let's begin. Think for a moment before you answer this question. Was Jesus' birth really a miracle? Now, if you were younger people, I would say raise your hand because, and then you will sort of identify here. But was Jesus' birth really a miracle? Think about it, especially you college and high school students, because you are probably going to be confronted with this kind of a thing again and again as young people. Now, would it, be, would it surprise you if I answered that question, was Jesus' birth really a miracle? Would the answer, no, it was not a miracle. Jesus' birth was not a miracle. Now, I'm sure it would surprise some of you who haven't really been thinking. But I repeat, Jesus' birth was not a miracle. He was born just like anybody else who was born. It was his conception that was the miracle, not his actual birth or his delivery. And that's an important distinction to make, all right? I believe, in fact, that this is, it is this failure to specifically distinguish between his conception and his birth 
that has made it so difficult for so many to separate the sacred from the secular and the holy from the profane during the Christmas season. Or perhaps I should put it this way. It is this failure to distinguish between these events that prevent us from transforming the secular into the sacred and the profane into that which is holy and set apart. We as believers, I believe, have allowed the secularist and the unholy to retain the secular and the unholy in what the church intended to transform into the sacred and the holy. I'm referring to history now, how the church has tried to transform things that were associated with December the 25th and so on into a Christian type of lifestyle. I think we've failed. And the reason is we have not really distinguished between the conception and the birth of Jesus Christ. We have allowed the secularist, the unholy, to keep the holiday rather than transforming it into a holy day, a day set apart for the glory of God rather than for the joy of man. Christmas is not about man. It's all about God. It's all about Jesus. We as individual believers, as well as the church as a whole, have not transformed the pagan culture associated with December the 25th. Instead, we have allowed the pagan culture to transform us as the people of God by imbibing and imposing their mores upon our lifestyle rather than vice versa. In other words, when it comes to observing Christians, I'm sorry, Christmas, Christians follow the unsaved rather than leading them in this observance. Because of this, I say, we for the most part tend to miss the true essence of the Christmas event altogether. And that is the mystery, the awesome mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God, God with us. This is the greatest and most magnificent event ever to occur on the face of this planet, or in fact, any other planet. We tend, as believers, to treat this heaven-shaking, eternally planned, divinely executed event as just another birthday celebration that focuses on the fun experience of those invited to a party rather than on the person who is being celebrated. Perhaps my point is best illustrated from the diary of a now famous doctor. He wrote this when he was in college. Let me see if I can find the story where he wrote it here. Here it is. This is a doctor now. Listen to what he's saying here. From my college days, I remembered one dramatic scene. A female patient was on the operating room, just going under the anesthesia. A hundred medical students, interns, and nurses watched with bated breath as the chief surgeon stated what he was going to do. This was a classical case of ovarian tumor, he said, and he was going to remove it. In the process of establishing his diagnosis, other diseases had been considered, such as tuberculosis, diseases of the intestine and liver, of the kidney and urinary bladder. All of them had been discarded. The present case was almost a textbook description of a tumor of the uterus, probably benign. As the students and junior surgeons watched, he made his incision with his usual flourish. We marveled at the certainty of his every move, at the purposeness of his every step. To us, that chief surgeon seemed the epitome of medical knowledge, 
the man who could not make a mistake, neither in diagnosis nor in surgical technique. But after working for a few minutes, he stopped what he was doing. There was a hurried conference between him and his assistant. With a motion of his hand, he stopped the anesthesiologist. He gave a command to his assistant, he got off his stool, and he left the operating room. It remained for the assistant to close the womb, terminate the day's session. Facing us, he spoke three words, diagnosis, normal pregnancy. Diagnosis, normal pregnancy. That's exactly how many regard the birth of Christ. Normal pregnancy. Just one pregnancy among all the millions that have occurred. But friends, what a mistaken diagnosis this is. And that's why I want you to think this morning. I want you to think about the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about the fact that Mary's pregnancy was not, in fact, a normal pregnancy. Think. Because if you do, I believe it can change how you act this Christmas. If you think, it may change how you act this Christmas. Now, many liberal theologian accuses, theologians accuse the gospel writers of recording the account of Jesus in terms of a biological miracle that our modern minds cannot comprehend. Therefore, they say, it should be discarded as humbug. Don't even be discussing and talking about a virgin birth. Science just does not agree with it. Science cannot uh, be uh, comprehended, cannot be demonstrated, and so on. So it's all a humbug. Just leave it alone. Even some churchmen of today define miracle as a violation of natural law. And therefore, they outrightly reject the notion of a virgin birth, a virgin birth, much less a virgin conception. For instance, just very recent here, the head of the Anglican Church came out publicly and said that he did not believe in the virgin birth. That was all a myth. That was the head of the Anglican Church. He's not there any longer, thankfully, but at the time he was. And there was another Anglican he, a minister. He uh, wrote a book recently about the incarnation to show that it was foolishness. It was against science. It could not be right. And he called it all a myth devised by the gospel writers to convince the readers of their position concerning Jesus Christ. So there are many professing Christians who disregard virgin conception altogether. See, their argument is that since according to natural law, virgin births do not occur in our day, neither did they occur in the past. No matter what anybody says, even the gospel writers. This cartoon depicts his attitude well. The guy is saying, I don't care what the angel said. Science doesn't support the possibility of a virgin birth. Now, actually, they're right when it, if they just keep it to virgin birth because the Bible itself does not teach or support this idea or concept. But these people are not thinking before they act. If they had thought about it, they would not have said a virgin birth. They would have said a virgin conception. Now, technically, of course, as I've already said, when we say virgin birth, we actually mean virgin conception because actually Jesus' birth or delivery into the world was just like any other baby's birth. The miracle lay in his conception. But nonetheless, 
we believe it's important for us to look at this in detail so that we could enter a little bit into the awesomeness of this season and that we as believers might approach Christmas with a different attitude altogether than the unbeliever. Now, what makes the conception of Jesus Christ unique? He was the first, final, and only person ever to be born of a woman who was a virgin before conception, a virgin while she was pregnant as well as afterwards until she had relations with her her husband, Joseph, sometime later. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church does not believe this. They believe that Mary uh, never uh, had children, any other children than Jesus Christ. Now, she had relations with her husband, Joseph, sometimes later. Now, some people like to come up today to say that Mary was artificially inseminated by the Holy Spirit. And that's a little twist to it. We're going to talk about this in a moment as well. You see, some argue the point today that virgins can give birth through artificial insemination. And of course, that's true. But of course, that process was not available in Mary's day. What happened to Mary happened without any kind of human intervention whatsoever. And this is the point you must remember. Without any kind of human intervention whatsoever. In fact, if God had not revealed it to her and to Joseph, they would never have known when or how Mary became pregnant. As far as they would have been concerned, to use the words of another famous character, Jesus would have just grown up. He would just grow up. You know what I'm referring to, right? God the Father, through the agency of God the Spirit, fertilized an egg within the womb of Mary with the human DNA and nature that would be added to the person of his already eternally existent son. But he would do that without actually mixing with his already present divine nature. That's the core of the miracle. In fact, that's the glory and mystery of Christmas. How could God cause Mary's egg to be fertilized and not in any way mixed with the nature of Jesus Christ as divine? Because although Jesus has two natures, they don't let all mix, they're completely separate. He's one person with two unmixed natures. Think about it. That's the sacredness of the season that Christmas must never lose, but yet so very few Christians even think about. We must separate this sacred, eternal reality from the temporality of our commercialized and ever-increasing secularism of our contemporary culture and society. If we don't do it, I ask you, who will do it? It's Christians, not the unsaved, who are responsible for creating and maintaining the Christian culture in our society. And that includes the Christian culture of Christmas. We have already Christianized rock, rap, and reggae music, all of which in their inception were associated with the basic drives of those who had rejected God out of their lives. The same as December the 25th was observed before the church turned it into a celebration for Christmas, the birth of Christ. Now, in the Bahamas, we have Christianized Junkanoo by adding biblical themes and church-sponsored floats to be paraded before our people to the beat of cowbells, goatskin drums, and the tune of Holem Joe, Mama no want no peas, no rice, 
and going down Burma Road, and we do it all in the name of culture. The question we, we must ask, though, whose culture is it? Christian or the world's? You see? I say again, if we don't distinguish between the sacred and the secular, the holy and the profane, who will? And if it's one time we need to be involved in this exercise, it's during the Christmas time. Believers have to make a difference in the world. We are not making that difference anymore. The same way it is true that all that glitters is not gold, so it is true that during this time of the year, all that is Christmas is not Christian. And so in keeping with the personal passion and conviction as the preacher and the teacher of the word of God, I want to continue to distinguish between the sacred and the secular aspects of Christmas. In fact, I want to separate the two as clearly as possible. I preach this same message every year. I am compelled to do so just by the very nature of the event that is commemorated and the significance of its cosmic impact. The incarnation of the Son of God to qualify him to die for the sin of the world and of all men of all time. That's what it's all about. And as believers, we must not, we cannot forget that when we come around celebrating Christmas. And my purpose for doing so is to try to get us thinking in the right direction as Christians concerning the Christmas season. Now, for many of you, you're already saying that's humbug. I don't want to think about that. Well, humbug. For us, the emphasis must be upon the miraculous and supernaturalness of the event we celebrate at this time, not the natural, physical, or ordinary. I believe that one of the reasons our young people today who are thinking, many of our young students are thinking and asking, I believe that one of the reasons so many of them are dissatisfied with Christianity is simply because we as older folk are not presenting them to the true nature of what Christianity is all about, especially when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. We must distinguish, I say, the sacred in the midst of the secular. I say again, if we as Christians don't do it, you can bet your life that the non-Christian won't. Sila. Think about it. I'll be back in a few minutes to get you thinking about the incarnation in a way you perhaps have not done before. But now we're going to have Anton come and we're going to sing a Christmas carol, What Child Is This? Please turn to number 16. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet, while shepherds watch our keeping.
Let's stand as we sing the rest of this song. Please. While I sing in such meanest state, where rocks and ass are feeling, Christian fearful sinners hear the silent word is bleeding. Oh, this, this is Christ the King. Whom shepherds, God, and angels sing. This, this is Christ the King, the babe, the son of Mary. For behold, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So bring him. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come, peasant king, to own him. The prince of peace, salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone. As we go through the season, I pray that as God showed his love by sending his only begotten son, that we too would ask him to show us how to love in his way, not just look to get, but how can we give and show his love. You became a simple man You didn't have to serve the poor and afflicted But you touched and healed their brokenness No greater love has been given You became the ultimate sacrifice Creating me the heart of a servant my soul desire. Show me how to love in the true meaning of the word. Teach me to sacrifice, expecting nothing in return. I want to give my life away, becoming more like you each and every day my words are not enough show me how to love I 
a bruised and battered woman with her hungry children on the streets. Then I heard you ask in that still small voice, what have you done for the least of these? Lord, consume me with a burning fire that melts away my complacency. Then let me be moved with love and compassion that someone might find a way in me. Show me how to love in the true meaning of the word. Teach me to sacrifice, expecting nothing in return. I want to give my life away, becoming more like you and every day my words are not enough show me how to love open up my eyes that I might clearly see more and more and more of you Lord and less of me Bye. Let my actions speak louder than my words. Oh, show me how to love in the true meaning of the word. Teach me to sacrifice, expecting nothing in return. I want to give my life away. Coming more like you each and every day. My words are not enough. Show me how to love. My words are not enough. Please show me how to Thank you, Anita. I'm going to show you another clip right now. And as you watch this, think of those words, God with us, especially in the scene where a baby is going to be held up. Look at it and say, God with us.
to God. son is the promised king of his people. What is his name? Jesus. His name is Jesus. Isn't that amazing? God with us. As I watched that, I was wondering, I said, now God, why didn't you do like Captain Kirk? And just say, beam him down. And let him appear. But he went through that humiliating, humiliating experience as God for us. Amazing. Think about this statement for a moment. Christianity stands or falls with the virgin birth, meaning, of course, the virgin conception. This underscores necessity of the virgin conception for Christianity. Of course, when we go to the New Testament, we have Paul teaching us that Christianity also falls, stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it can be proven that Jesus was not raised from the dead, Christianity would crumble to dust. But there could be no resurrection without the death. And there could be no death without the birth. Amen? So God, I believe, sees these three events as one. And so when we say that we believe that the virgin conception is a necessity for Christianity, we're keeping that in mind. Think about it. The essential question here is the origin of Christ's Humanity. Was he truly man and truly God at the same time as one person? Now you say, why should I think about this? Because you're a Christian. Do you realize that when you first became a Christian, you didn't know what you were doing? You didn't know what you were getting into. You didn't know anything about the Trinity. You didn't know, for most part anyway, 
You didn't know anything about the virgin conception. You didn't know anything about the meaning of the resurrection or sanctification or redemption or propitiation and all those things. That's why I like that one of the church fathers said, we become a Christian in order to understand what we did. One of the sad things is many Christians don't understand what they did because they don't think about their faith. They don't think about their faith. Now, was he truly man and truly God at the same time as one person? Now, this is meaty stuff. This is strong meat here. But it is also the real reason for the season that all believers should know. So you have to think about it very carefully. I say again, I believe that's what Christmas is all about. Thinking about exactly who the baby Jesus was. Do you know what? The reason why many people, even Christians, do not thank God for his unspeakable, indescribable Christmas gift is because they really don't think about him as an indescribable Christmas gift at Christmas time. And as a result, we become thankless people because we are thoughtless people. You see, thankful people are thoughtful of people who think. Thoughtful people are thankful people. This is especially true when it comes to thinking about Christ at Christmas time. Thoughtless people are thankless, and thankless people do not worship God. They look out for themselves. Think about this also. Some Christians still wonder if they should tell their children the truth about Santa Claus when in fact many parents themselves do not know the truth about Santa Claus. Many parents do not realize that the present-day Santa Claus, St. Nick, is actually a de-Christianization of a true historical figure. A man, in fact, who was a devout Christian, and he was a bishop in the early church. And he was one who actually gave to the poor and the needy, not to the rich and greedy. And he did so secretly, without the families knowing that it was he who was giving to them. In his hometown, there were many poor children. They didn't have enough food, clothes, or toys. This is a historical fact. The man's name was Nicholas. And this godly Nicholas, Nicholas used his money to buy food, clothes, and toys for the poor children in his town. He didn't want them to be embarrassed by his gifts, so he gave secretly. He simply left the food, the clothing, or money at the doorstep of any family he heard had a need. That's a little different than we do it. When we go to give out in the charitable way, we call the tribune or the guardian and come take pictures. This guy didn't do this. Now, he was martyred for his faith. And afterwards, the Roman church officially recognized him as a saint. That's because his name was Nicholas, and that's where we have Saint Nick today. All right? Santa Claus really is the transliteration of St. Nicholas. It eventually turned into Santa Claus. It was in the language of the author of the now famous Christmas poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. In fact, it was this Christmas poem here, The Night Before Christmas, where Santa Claus was first introduced and became then the main focus of Christmas for so many. But my point is this. St. Nick, St. Nicholas was one of the bishops 
who attended one of the early church councils which met to discuss the deity of Christ. There were many in the early church who opposed this concept, believe it or not, did not teach the deity of Christ, especially where two natures in one person. St. Nicholas, however, was a strong advocate of this truth for the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus Christ in one person. He was, such, he was so convinced of this, in fact, that it said that on one occasion when they were debating the issue, and listen, these guys used to get hot, said St. Nick actually got up from his seat, went up to the guy who was opposing him and punched him in the mouth. That's St. Nicholas. Now, I'm not encouraging you to do that, all right? But I want you to see that he did it out of a conviction of the fact that he understood and he believed that Jesus Christ was both God and man in one person. And he was, he was firm in that and he would do anything to hold. That's St. Nick. That's Santa Claus. He believed in the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, parents, have you ever taught that to your children about Santa Claus? Or are you just trying to find who's naughty or who's nice? St. Nick was a believer in the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was conceived in a miraculous way by the Holy Spirit. Friends, in actuality, this is the reason for the season. God coming as a man in order to redeem us. Think about this. If Jesus had a human father, then he was and is not God. If Jesus had a human father, the Bible is not true. And we are still in our sins as believers. Friends, our salvation depends upon the reality and the historicity of the virgin conception. Let me put it another way. It depends upon the truth of what Christmas is all about, if you understand what it's all about. Think about this. No one can be saved who knowingly and deliberately denies this doctrine. No one who knowingly denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that he was conceived with the Holy Spirit. If you deny that doctrine, you cannot be saved. Because when you deny that, you deny that he actually is God. No one, I say, can be a Christian in a biblical sense of that term and deliberately deny this truth. This is why when I read the whole story about the Anglican bishops who headed the church who believe it's just impossible to believe that that would happen today. And you actually have one of the bishops now writing a book to counter the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. But think about this also. If, as we believe the case to be, Jesus did not have a human father, but a divine father, then he is God. Think about it. This would only be possible if the incarnation were true. Now think about this. It is important to understand that Jesus is not God because he was virgin born, but rather he was virgin born because he is God. All right? Very important. To put it another way, because Jesus is God, in order to be truly human also, he had to have a virgin conception. Think, I say, think about the awesomeness of this event we claim to celebrate this time of the year. I can guarantee you, the more you think about it, the more thankful you'll be. Think about it. 
while we sing the carol, who is he in yonder stall? Who is he in yonder stall? Anton? You'll find that in your songbook. It's number 33. We're going to sing verses 4 and 5 together, just so that you know that. Who is he in yonder stall, at whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he in deep distress, fasting in the wilderness? Tis Test the Lord. 
Okay, I hope you are thinking, because I want you to think now about this statement. A true incarnation demands a literal but unique virgin conception. A true incarnation, God becoming man while still remaining God, demands a literal but unique virgin conception. Think about it. How does conception occur? Now, don't let your mind go astray. This is really where you have to begin thinking. Conception occurs through the union of a male sperm with a female egg. The question for us is, how did human life begin, human life begin in the womb of Mary without human male fertilization? How did it happen? This, I say, is the mystery and wonder of Christmas. This is what we actually celebrate this amazing event that so few of us understand. The incarnation of the Son of God as the Son of Man while remaining to be God. Two natures in one person, but humanity is not deified and his deity is not humanized. The mystery and miracles are found in the answer to the question, how did life begin in the womb of Mary without human male fertilization or implantation? Believe it or not, science answers this question for us today. Science, who actually denies it, answers how this happens. And the only way we could understand it from a human perspective today is because of the advance uh, in this area of human genetics or DNA. It helps us to understand this in a way we could not do so previously. Listen carefully now. The virgin conception of Jesus was not through what is called parthenogenesis by scientists. Parthenogenesis. This is a big word, but it simply means virgin beginning of virgin origin, or for our purposes, virgin birth. Scientists tell us that this is a rare but actual phenomenon which occurs in lower life forms in laboratory experiments, as well as in such forms as sea urchins, we call them sea eggs, silkworms, honeybees, and some frogs. And I read just the other day that they discovered the same thing happening with some snakes, where uh, these, these particular, uh, what do you call these things? These particular animals gave birth without uh, fertilization between male and female. It just happened over a period of time. I won't go through all the details of it, but it's a very rare thing. It's never happened they could discover as far as a human is concerned. Now, genetics, gen genesis, I'm sorry, gen geneticists, people who deal with genetics, DNA, have established, of course, that all mammals have two X chromosomes in the female and that the male has both an X and a Y. This means that whenever an unfertilized female egg cell duplicates, its chromosomes in response to some kind of artificial situation, the result would always have to be female. Let me say that again. 
Whenever an unfertilized female egg cell duplicates its chromosomes in response to some kind of artificial simulation, that's apart from regular relationships, the result will always have to be female because there is no male implantation. All right? Here's how one scientist describes it. Modern genetics reveal that some things that are called alleys, alleys are forms of a gene that determine the makeup or characteristic of a person. They must come from both a male via the sperm and a female via the egg. He says that they reveal that these particular genes from both parents make one person at conception. The statement, that which is conceived in her is the Holy Spirit, shows how God was the father and the Virgin Mary was the mother. And also, the fact that DNA is a code demonstrates how the speech or the word of God recorded upon the nucleic acids would form the real genetic contribution from the divine side. Now, you don't understand that at all. And that's what I want. I want you to see how mysterious and awesome things are. They're simply saying here that Upon every DNA, there's a code that comes with it, written instructions. This is what you do. Eyes turn blue, nose turn long. You know, it's a code that's written into it, all right? And this code, in order to make a male or female, a male has to come from both a male and a female. If, it, if the male doesn't contribute, you always have a female. You understand what I'm saying? The male has to contribute. Here's how another theologian scientist states the matter. Now, I'm giving you this because I want you to understand when we talk about the virgin conception, it is not an ordinary thing. It's a mystery. And we'll never fully understand it. But what amazes me today is that scientists that rejects it now gives us the reason for believing it. It's just amazing. According to natural law, this is a quote from another theologian, the virgin conception of Mary should have produced a daughter, not a son. Because the human male determines the sex of the offspring. It is obvious that the sex of the human nature of Jesus was determined by the sex of his divine nature. He was not God the daughter. He was God the son. So you see, when you read that statement, the old, you should be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of mystery in that. That is not just a little cloud coming over a little vapor. This is one of the most amazing statements in Scripture. When God is doing something within the, not just within the womb of Mary, but in the egg of Mary, writing the code in there that would cause Jesus to become a human being without being mixed with a divine nature. But yet, two natures exist. And it is this. In the case of Jesus, his supernatural entrance into the unfertilized egg of Mary by what the Bible calls the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit caused her egg to develop without the expected duplication of the female X chromosomes. That was done by the Spirit of God. Now, naturally and scientifically, within the world of birds and butterflies and moths and some fish, the genetic structure is just the opposite. The males have the similar pair of chromosomes, whereas the females have the odd. Pathogenically, then, produced life 
would always be males if it was artificially stimulated. In these particular uh, situations, it always be males. One scholar puts it this way. Although it would appear that Mary did not determine the sex of a fetus, yet it should not be concluded that she did not contribute anything to Christ's nature. Remember, it was her egg that God the Son entered. But now let's back up for a moment. Because even if this paternogenesis were possible with humans, it would still not satisfy the virgin conception of Christ. Think about it. It would only prove that he is human, but not that he is God. Humans produce humans, not gods, regardless of what some televangelists say to the contrary. Now, with respect to Jesus, something absolutely unique had to take place. A true, genuine, and unrepeatable miracle had to occur. And you know, underline unrepeatable, because scientists like to say, in order to prove something, you've got to repeat it again. You've got to go over it. But this is unrepeatable. Think about this now. Are you ready? Neither could Jesus' conception have occurred only according to a special creation of a nature within the womb of Mary by God. Why? Because this would eliminate his human genetic connection with our humanity, which is absolutely necessary for our redemption. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus took a hold not of the nature of angels, but the nature of human beings. And they go on to show us that, I'm going to explain this, then I'll close, just again so you could be struck with the awesomeness and the mystery of this. It is quite possible that there's somebody in, I can say Jerusalem, we could be anywhere in the world now, that bears some of the human genetics of Jesus Christ. I said human. Why? Because he was human and he had the DNA fed through his mother, Mary. You understand what I'm saying? The divine one, no, definitely not. But the human, yes. Otherwise, he couldn't be human. But yet, on Christmas, when God became a man, God worked it so that this young woman called Mary, who did not know a man, would bear a son that was free from sin. I see we had time to go to that. This DNA that was passed on to Mary, I mean passed on from Mary, had to be free from any of the things that was tainted with sin. That means the death gene could not have been passed on to Jesus. We all have that death gene within us. But that was short-circuited by the Holy Spirit somehow. And we can go on and on to show the mystery of this. And the more you learn about the DNA and the code that is written, the language that is written on the DNA that is placed within us, that determines who we are, the more we could understand how Jesus could be both a man and God without mixing one person, two natures, divine and human. That's Emmanuel, God with us. Friends, if there's anything that this should lead us to do, although we do not fully understand it or can comprehend it, it should cause us to worship and to thank God that he would do such a miracle, a unique miracle, in order to redeem us.
That's what Christmas is all about. Please don't lose sight of that. Worship Emmanuel, God with us. And think about what that means this Christmas. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful and fantastic miracle that you accomplished on this day that we call Christmas. We just pray now, Lord, that you might cause our hearts to reach out to you with praise and thanksgiving for this wonderful event, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.